Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor U.S. in Washington, D.C. I'm Rachel Conleth, Senior Associate Editor in London. And I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs, also in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 5th of May. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, the draft of a Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade was leaked and published. We discuss the implications for reproductive rights in the United States. Meanwhile, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is sparring with Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid on Holocaust remembrance. He, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, puts forward an argument. What kind of Nazification can we have if I'm a Jew? If I remember right, and I may be wrong, but Hitler also had Jewish origins. So it doesn't mean absolutely anything. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Welcome, Rachel, making your World Review debut. Thank you for being with us today. So we have a lot to get into this week. To start out, the big news here in the United States was, as we said at the top there, the draft of a decision penned by Justice Samuel Alito, which would overturn Roe versus Wade, which is the 1973 Supreme Court decision that guaranteed the right to an abortion on a federal level. Basically, if this draft were to become the final decision, Roe versus Wade would be overturned and it would be up to states to decide whether or not to permit women to have access to abortions. In about half of the country, abortion would just be banned outright. And I have to say, it's it was obvious to me from the arguments in this case back in the fall that this is where the justices were headed, but it nevertheless was crushing just to read it, right? To read the draft and to see this outlined and to have this move closer to reality. Rachel, you have written on the importance of abortion access before and, and the importance of, of access to reproductive basically the importance of reproductive rights before. And so I, I wanted to get, what were your your first impressions on learning of this? Similar to you in that it was simultaneously expected. If you've been watching the conservative right in the US, overturning Roe has been their aim for decades. And so much of that political movement has been based around gaining a majority on the Supreme Court so this can be 
possible. Uh, in fact, like a lot of people, a lot of women were warning about this uh, in the run up to the 2016 election that whatever you thought of Hillary Clinton or a vast variety of issues, the fact was that if a Republican president got in and got the chance to appoint Supreme Court justices, this would be the result. Some of us were uh, dismissed as being hysterical when we made that point. And now it's six years later, three conservative Supreme Court justices appointed and we are where you are. So you can have seen it coming, as so many people did, and still be really shocked that the most powerful country in, in the world, the leader of the free world, basically looks like it's about to decide overnight that half the population aren't entitled to healthcare, to bodily autonomy, and that's the rights of the unborn fetus, therefore somehow trump women's rights to be treated as full autonomous human beings who can make decisions about their body. So I saw it coming. I'm shocked and basically devastated. Nothing prepares you for that. And I think we should say a few other things about what happens now, because there are some who say if abortion is so popular, which 70% or almost 70% of people in the United States do support some, some access to abortion. If it's so popular, why don't you just codify it? Why don't you just make it a law? What this ignores is the fact that at the state level, individual states are passing laws to make voting more difficult, are gerrymandered in such a way as to favor Republican-controlled legislatures, and the Senate is more conservative than the country. So we have this legislative system that is set up for minoritarian rule, essentially, and the Democrats do not have enough senators. A bill that would protect the right to an abortion has already passed the House and is not going to pass the Senate. So that's one. The second thing is that there are some who will say, why can't a woman or why can't a person just travel to a different state? What this ignores is the financial burden that this puts on people, first. And second, that some states are considering passing laws that would make it illegal to travel out of state for an abortion. Similarly, some people say, what about abortion pills? And it is true that people have greater access to medicine now that would let them perform an abortion on themselves than in the pre-Roe years. There is also pending legislation in some states that would make this illegal. Also, if you are in a state where abortion is made illegal, take a pill and need to go to the doctor, what then? So there, there is really no way in which this does not dramatically limit people's rights. And I think some people say it was already difficult to get an abortion in the United States. And that is true. The movement that Rachel was describing has already decreased access for many millions of people. However, there is a big difference between difficult and it's still legal federally and difficult and it's not. And we are about to see that. And the people who will primarily feel the brunt of this are, as ever, the impoverished, people of color, immigrants who are unclear about you know their legal status and, and what it would mean to go get an abortion. What I think is also really interesting, and Katie and Rachel, I'd like to get your perspective on this too, is that is that right away you had some on the right who said, well, this isn't really a big deal and this won't really change anything. So they finally get this momentous achievement or are or, or, or as close to this momentous achievement that that movement has been working toward for five decades. And the immediate instinct is to downplay it. Now, to me, this is because although this has been a cherished goal for this movement, it is not politically popular. This is an extremist position. This is not popular with most people in the United States. And so rather than celebrate it, they're going to privately take the win and publicly say, no, let's focus on inflation. Emily, I'd, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about that, actually, because I, I wonder whether there is a, a degree of political risk here for the Republicans? Could this become a real galvanizing issue that, that 
does get people out in large numbers for the midterms and, and does turn around what has been somewhat of a flagging agenda for Biden and for Democrats who are desperately trying to hold on to the House this autumn. I am pretty cynical about this. We heard some reports yesterday that there were those in the Biden White House who said this will really increase turnout in November. I don't know when you have a Democratic White House, a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House of Representatives that will not codify the right to have an abortion that say, but just get out and vote for us harder is going to galvanize people. I also think that if it galvanizes some on the left, it will also encourage turnout on the right. So I don't know actually how this plays politically, and I can see it being advantageous for for, for either Democrats or for Republicans. It, it's also gambling with women's lives and particularly women who are in red states or parts of the country where the full force of this is going to play out. It's interesting what you were saying, Emily, about previous efforts to, to limit abortion. Obviously, the, the most high profile one is Texas that passed a bill last year that would ban all abortion in, in all circumstances after six, which is before most women find out or, or realise that they're pregnant. And this was after having imposed lots of other restrictions that closed down the number of, of clinics in the state. This is a huge state. I think we had 22 clinics for 29 million people. But the really pernicious aspect of that bill, when you talk about things like traveling across state lines to get an abortion or ordering abortion pills, is it would have made anyone who helped a woman uh, get an abortion liable to be sued for tens of thousands of dollars. And anyone, any private citizen could launch a lawsuit over anyone that they thought helped facilitate that. So you're looking at doctors being sued for helping women who are miscarrying, or you're looking at parents being sued for driving their teenage daughter across state lines, or the Uber driver being sued for, for taking, taking a woman somewhere to get an abortion after that time. That was the full range of the restrictions. And that was obviously before the, the leak of this Supreme court ruling. So maybe it will galvanize support. Maybe people will come out and, and vote in the midterms. But the idea that enough of them will to overturn state legislatures in places like Texas quick enough to stop women dying or facing horrific trauma or trying to self-terminate and, and suffering the consequence of that. Sadly, I, I don't think that that's a plausible scenario. Particularly since many states are, do have trigger laws where the minute that Roe is overturned, there will be laws that that go into effect that severely restrict a person's right to, to choose. I want to flag a couple of other things about, and again, this is a draft, so we don't know if this is the final version of the decision or how much of this will be in the final version of the decision. But the way that this decision read, this draft decision read, first of all, it looked as though it would also overturn a case called Casey from the 1990s, which reaffirmed Roe and also made it such that you did not have to get spousal permission to have an abortion. So in addition to Roe versus Wade being overturned, we may also have this other case overturned, which means that essentially that a woman would need to go to her husband to get approval to have an abortion. Also, the way that this was written, many people, myself included, were quick to say, oh, after they do this, there's also going to be a push to make it more difficult, not impossible, to get birth, to access to birth control. And that the 2015 case that made the right to gay marriage, the law of the land, that could be overturned too. I think it's important to see this as an attack on civil rights and that this is a starting point, not an ending point for that attack. We should also note that there are already conservative lawmakers who are talking about 
putting a federal ban on abortion through the legislative system. Uh, and I guess the last thing that I wanted to say on this subject, and or Katie and Rachel, I don't know if, if you have anything to add after this, but that I understand that for some people, opposition to an abortion is a religious issue. And that is fine. You can consult your own faith in making that choice or not making that choice. But there is more than one religion in the United States. And in addition to being, I think, as a woman, offended, hurt, disrespected, as a Jewish person, I'm also offended, hurt, and disrespected. Can I just ask Rachel, Emily and I are both hearing here in Washington, you're in London. How is this being reported, being perceived there? How does this make the United States look to the wider world? Firstly, that's outrage and shock is the sort of predominant emotion. What I think is interesting is that the dynamics of reproductive rights are obviously very different here in, in the UK. And we have so many culture war issues, but so far, fingers crossed, uh, abortion doesn't seem to be one of them. Obviously, normalising and, and equalising access in Northern Ireland, where it, it's still illegal, it, is very important. But we don't have the same Christian right movement dominating politics in quite the same way. However, if you look at how various news organisations have been covering it, they've been covering it here in the UK in the same culture war style, pro against, okay, here is somebody who's in favour of reproductive justice and equality. And here's somebody who has a religious view that, that differs with that. Great, let's get them to clash. Which really damaging. Limited, because, right? Because, and limited, yeah. I mean, it's, it's most people do not, like most people in their lives actually don't think in these binary terms in, in making this decision for themselves. And yet when it comes into politics, exactly as you're saying, they do. Yeah, and I think there's a real tendency in the UK because America is so big and American news dominates the world to play out our own debates on these kind of issues in the same kind of way, as though it's the same political landscape, as though it's the same political forces, as though it's the same public sentiment. And it's it's none of those things. The one positive is that I have been seeing a lot of women sharing their stories about why they got a termination, how easy or difficult it was, what their emotions were about that. And also a lot of doctors sharing stories about absolutely heartbreaking cases, actually showing what the reality is when you limit abortion access. Because everyone knows it's sort of a cliche to say, but you can't outlaw abortion. What you can do is outlaw safe abortion. And we've had lots of stories about the consequences of that, lots of stories about how female biology actually works, which is something that it seems male lawmakers often don't have a very good understanding of. And I think that's important because if we don't talk about those things, it is easier for people in, in all countries, including in the UK, to push the idea that it's it's a moral issue, it's about protecting the unborn, It's they, they put the pro-life label over something that very directly uh, and very evidently causes a huge amount of harm and causes women to die. And the more we are discussing it in those very frank terms, the less that faction are able to hide behind euphemisms. One last brief question for, for, for Emily. Just It almost seems like a second order concern, given you know, how, how eloquently and how strongly you've both spoken about what's in state, at stake here in terms of women's lives and, and their health. But I also just wonder, what does this mean for the Supreme Court itself as an institution? Are we looking at, you know, are we radicalised nakedly political court now. We're really interested to hear what you think about that. 
Yeah, I think there were some people who were clutching their pearls about the fact that this was leaked because what about the institution? I'm sorry, what about the institution? The institution, you have one of these justices is in a seat that basically in the last year of the Obama era, the Republican controlled Senate decided not to let Obama fill the seat because there were something like nine months to go before the election. And then in the last days of the Trump administration, push Amy Coney Barrett onto the bench. So you have you have this you have a stolen Supreme Court seat. You have just this this farce of the politicization of the confirmation hearings. You have the fact that there are let's just say there are two people sitting on the bench in lifetime appointments who were accused of sexual harassment. Yes, this is a political body like any other. They are acting like political actors. What are we pretending? Like, oh, he's an originalist, whereas he is a... No, stop it. You're all reading the law, politically interpreting it to serve your own political viewpoints. I suppose that that's only natural, but let's just be honest about what's going on here. These are not like minds floating in the heavens. They are human beings who put on robes and make decisions that impact their fellow countrymen and women. That is what's going on here. And I think it's in addition to that, it's also worth saying that at least two of them said during their appointment process that they they considered Roe to be constitutionally right and they, they wouldn't seek to overturn it. So uh, it's not like the legal arguments have dramatically changed since they made those statements. And it, it seems very likely that they misled congressmen in order to get those appointments knowing full well what it was that they were going to do when given the chance. We will continue to follow this, this story in the weeks to come. But for now, we are going to turn to another another absurd news item from this week. So if you listen to this podcast, you know that one of the reasons that Russia said it went to war in Ukraine was denazification. One of the objections to this, besides the fact that's not what they're doing, is that Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is himself Jewish. Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, decided to take it upon himself to say, well, Zelensky, Jews can be anti-Semites. And Hitler was of Jewish descent, which like, no. So Israeli foreign minister Yair Lapid responds to this saying, don't say that. And then Lavrov decided to double down and basically speak about Jewish collaborators in the Udenrat during the Second World War. So there's a lot to unpack here. I guess there were two main things that jumped out at me. The first is that Israel has played an interesting position in the war, in Russia's war in Ukraine, you know, has not been as full-throated in its support of Ukraine as some would have liked, has tried to be more of a diplomatic go-between in some ways, and has also objected at certain points to Holocaust comparisons that people either in Ukraine or in support of Ukraine have made. What's interesting about that, and this is subject for a whole separate podcast, but there are Israeli politicians who will at times invoke the Holocaust and make those comparisons themselves. And so I think those who say nobody should ever make Holocaust comparisons ever, those comparisons are made all the time. And it's more a matter of when is it appropriate? When is it relevant? When is it meaningful? Which I think we can agree. Russia saying we're denazifying Ukraine is none of those things. That's number one. The other thing that I thought that really jumped out at me is that this is just so outlandish and offensive, but there, and I'd be interested to hear more from, from Rachel and Katie about this, but there is this sort of version of Holocaust revisionism in Europe today, which is not to say outright that it didn't happen, but rather to say, well, sure, it happened, but like my country wasn't really involved in that. I didn't do anything wrong. And I, I think what happens when you have statements like this in the discourse, so to speak, it just lowers the bar, 
for discussions of remembrance and for discussions of accountability and narratives of justice. And so it's easy to sort of say, like, Lavrov said this ridiculous thing, but I actually do think that these sorts of statements are hurtful in the way in which we talk about remembrance. But what do you, what do, you do think? I think it's really interesting, the, the argument that goes essentially, well, everyone knows the Nazis were bad, but also kind of the implication is everyone knows that Jews are bad, therefore the Jews must have been Nazis or the Nazis were part Jewish or, or somehow the Holocaust has Jewish roots to it. And in order for that argument to be compelling, you, you have to have quite a lot of anti-Semitism to start with. But it, it, if that's your your starting point that everyone knows, I, sh- I should say at this point, I am, I am also Jewish. Uh, but if your starting point is that everyone knows that Jews run the world and are, have the money and the power and are behind everything shadowy, and everyone also knows that the Nazis are bad, then I can see how logically you do that weird convoluted twist in order to get to that absolutely absurd position. And you also managed to conveniently erase the fact that 6 million Jews died in the Holocaust. And you managed to make Nazism about something completely different, which I think is kind of interesting in the UK and in the way David Baddiel has been very interesting on this, in the way that anti-Semitism is treated in the UK as different from other forms of racism. Because yes, it's bad, but the kind of subliminal message is often, but we all know that the Jews aren't great, so it's kind of okay. And you've seen that in conversations within the Labour Party, that some of the ways in in which anti-NATO and, and, and pro-Russia sentiment is, is discussed here in, in the UK, and it, it's part of a, a wider pattern. Usually, though, they, they don't come out and say it in quite such bizarre terms as, as the Russian Foreign Minister did. I'd be interested to know from Katie, does this actually make sense in, in, in Russia? If you're watching this, if you're the Russian audience uh, and you're hearing these statements, is that believable? Is that credible? Yeah, I think, it, let me firstly say, you know, it's outrageous. It's offensive. Shame on Sergei Lavrov, who once comported himself with the stature of a, of something of a statesman in, in any case. But yeah, I think it's important to, to understand how the history of the war is taught in Russia and how these terms, when, when, when the Russian state talks about fascists and Nazis and the campaign that they falsely claim to be waging in Ukraine, what they mean by that and how those terms have been hollowed out. This goes right back to, to Stalin and immediately after the war and his own anti-Semitism and his own refusal to acknowledge the horrors of the Holocaust. So right from those early years, there just wasn't the same degree of focus in Russia as there was in, in many of the other allied nations about what had happened to, to Jews during the war. There's this famous example, you know, as long as 1965, so two decades after the war, when a request by the Israeli Holocaust Memorial Yad Vashem is made to, to Moscow for details about Soviet Jewish victims, the official response comes back that we don't detail the victims of of, of Hitler's uh, campaign according to their nationality. The way the war is portrayed in Russia is this was an attack by Hitler on the Soviet Union and on the Russian people specifically, rather than any particular effort to single out the Jews. Lavrov's comments are tapping into to that long, false narrative of history in Russia. And it's, it's just important to say that while it does seem absurd and ludicrous hearing these terms, hearing these claims here, that's not how they are necessarily being understood in Russia, where dependent 
media access to alternative sources of, of information has been shut right down. And there is increasingly only the Kremlin's version of reality about, about what's happening in, in Ukraine and their claims that, you know, they are, as they claim to have been during the, the Second World War, the hero country that, that saved the world from Nazism. So I, I think it would be a, a mistake to assume that this will necessarily be seen there as the plainly ludicrous and offensive lie that it is. I also just want to note that while obviously I think this is important and wanted to discuss it on the podcast today, it's also at its core a deflection because Russia is not in Ukraine to denazify there. It came out today that the the airstrike on a Mariupol theater, there might as many as 600 dead. That is what is actually at stake here. It's incredibly deadly war that has killed thousands, displaced millions. And I don't mean to dismiss the seriousness of historical revisionism. And actually, if you missed our conversation from Monday, Katie has a new book out about how autocrats use history. So go back to Monday's interview and listen to that for some more on this. And I I think it matters, but it's fundamentally a deflection from what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said, on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwa screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. For more on what Russia is doing in Ukraine, we will turn now to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. us. Rachel, that was pretty good for a first You Ask Us. Okay, so basically (laughs) the question that some listeners wanted to know, and Katie, I'm going to turn to you for this, is will Russia officially declare war, which it's been at since February, but has said that it's not, will Russia officially declare war on May 9th? First of all, what is the significance of, of May 9th for listeners who are perhaps unfamiliar? Yeah, so May 9th is known in Russia as Victory Day. It's the anniversary of the end of the, the Second World War. It, in Moscow time, it fell on May 9th. And it has been really elevated significantly since Putin came to power. Over the last two decades, it's become really one of the country's most important holidays. It's become politically very important for Vladimir Putin. He derives an enormous amount of legitimacy from the holiday and he uses each anniversary to position himself as the, the modern day heir to this great victory and to cast his, his current actions in the light of what is held there to be this glorious and sacred victory. And so the back Growing to this, as regular listeners will know, is that it is currently illegal in Russia to call the war in Ukraine a war on penalty of 15 years in prison. You have to call it a special military operation. There is a lot of speculation now that Putin will use this anniversary to to recast the war, the the special military operation as a war to mobilise reserves and to be he will take the chance to frame it in the terms of of the past war and declare a new war. Let me caveat my answer by saying there is only one person who knows whether this is going to be the case, and that is Vladimir Putin. His spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, said in in the last few minutes just before we were recording that this is, quote, nonsense, um, that there is no truth to these rumours at all. But it's worth saying that they also said up until the moment of the invasion that they had no plans whatsoever to invade Ukraine. So we will wait to see the specific words that he uses on May 9th. But I think at the very least, he will use that day, that holiday, the memory of that conflict to galvanise support for this war and to double down on this message that what they're doing there is a noble effort to, to save civilians from genocide as how they present it when, it, when of course, the truth is it's an unprovoked war of aggression that is killing civilians in, in vast numbers across Ukraine every day. I I'd also think it will be interesting in that this was, I mean, May 9th was once the holiday that leaders around the world came to Moscow for, to stand with Putin and to mark the great victory of the Soviet Union. And it will be a very different picture this year. Yeah, I think it would be a very foolish Western leader who who went to stand alongside Putin. The, the way that holiday is is remembered now, I think it's clear now that it is it's a nakedly political event for Vladimir Putin, and standing alongside him is just legitimizing his version of reality and his version of history. And and also on a note that might seem flippant, but I don't I don't think is four days after May 9th is the Eurovision Song Contest, um, which Russia has been 
banned from for exactly that reason, essentially. And you can laugh at the dynamics of the Eurovision Song Contest and how ridiculous the music is and the judging system and, and all of that. But it it tries very hard or has tried very hard not to take a political stance. And I do think it is notable that this year it was agreed that countries wouldn't be associated with it if it were possible to use it as a platform for Putin to champion Russian culture and, and, and Russian music in that way. I'm, I'm sorry for derating the history of popular culture. No, I think it's, and they're related, right? The one is in part how we how we remember the other. Thank you to all of you who sent in your questions. And listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for an interview with Ramon Paheko Pardo on his new book and South Korea's new president. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review, and tell your friends. Our producers have been Hugh Smiley and May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.